when you see him on a video, people respond. He's sitting there in blue jeans. You know, he looks like a bag man, you know, but he's talking about the world and he's talking about his place in it and what he thinks and what he believes. And people respond to that. And I think it's partly this authenticity, you know? Yeah. Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us and art and music movements through history. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. As we've explored the birth of modern music, we have detailed the lives and works of many eclectic composers throughout the century, and this episode is no different. John Cage was an American composer and pioneer of aleatoric music. Music where parts of its creation is left to chance. He despised goal-oriented harmonic musical narratives. Cage let chance override musical composition the way it plays upon nature. He focused on the subtleties between sound and silence, the same way they intertwine in existence. Embracing noise as others did before him, including Russolo, Seti, and Varez, Cage was able to transcend the bounds of traditional music composition that would baffle the avant-garde world for decades. Cage was born in 1912 in Los Angeles. He played the works of Edvard Grieg at age 12, enamored with Grieg's lack of apprehension to parallel fifths. Parallel fifths, or consecutive fifths, happen when a perfect fifth is followed by another perfect fifth. At this same age, Cage was the voice of a radio show that provided Boy Scout news and inspirational talk. Cage took piano lessons from his aunt, who had an eccentric teaching methods that included shaking rice-filled balloons and hitting radiators with sticks. Cage then became more interested in theology and literature and enrolled in Pomona College in 1928. After a year, he left college to tour Europe. While in Europe, he took piano lessons at the Paris Conservatoire. He also studied Gothic architecture with Erno Goldfinger. Cage began writing his first compositions during this time as well. He didn't like them and left the works behind. Cage did a lot of odd jobs, including teaching art and music history to homemakers. It was during this time he contacted Richard Bulig to play a Schoenberg piece. The two had not previously met, but Cage was convinced that Bulig was the only one who could play the piece. Bulig agreed to play the piece, and he went on to serve as sort of a mentor to Cage. 
Bulig, while enthusiastic about Cage, was not a fan of the formlessness of Cage's works. Bulig was a student of Hinduism and Buddhism. He taught Cage that listening to something with expectation is listening with opinion. It is with Bulig that you hear influence of Schoenberg's contrapuntal styles in Cage's works. For example, Sonata for Clarinet and Three Pieces for Two Flutes. <laughs> Cage went on to study under Henry Cowell, who was called the guru of everything avant-garde, at the behest of Bulig, who said he could no longer help Cage. Cage had read Cowell's book, New Musical Resources, and was interested in using percussive composition rather than tonal composition. Cowell led Cage to Adolf Weiss, a student of Arnold Schoenberg. Cage spent the next couple of years in New York studying with Weiss. Cage then returned to California and became a pupil of Arnold Schoenberg's. Cage married a writer, Xenia Kashvaroff, in 1935. Schoenberg and Cage went separate ways due to a disagreement on harmonies placed in composition. Cage said, I certainly had no feeling for harmony, and Schoenberg thought that, that would make it impossible for me to write music. He said, You'll come to a wall you won't be able to get through. I said, well, then I'll beat my head against that wall. I quite literally began hitting things and developed a music of percussion that involved noises. I'm James Pritchett, and I have been studying John Cage's music for a number of years. Oh, gosh, 30-odd years now. And, um, and wrote the book... Uh, the Music of John Cage, published by Cambridge University Press, which was and remains the first really full critical survey of Cage's work. What Schoenberg did was provide him an example of how to be a composer and how to be a leader in the world of music and how to have a vision for what music and art should be. People think about, well, what was Cage's relationship with Schoenberg and how important was he and try to make musical connections. But I think really the biggest thing that Schoenberg was, was this figure of this is what a composer should be. And it's really disciplined and devoted to music. My name is Laura Kuhn. I'm the executive director of the John Cage Trust. We're now situated at Bard College. We've been here since 2007. I've been the executive director of the John Cage Trust since its inception in 1993. Cage studied with Schoenberg. It's unclear for how long exactly, what kind of classes exactly. We don't have much. We know that he studied counterpoint with him. We know that Cage was fond of saying that if you wanted to learn something or you wanted to get something done, it was good to go to the head of the company. He used to say that, and that's a very sweet thought. And Schoenberg, for him, was the head of the company. If you were going to be a composer in 1930, say, which is when he turned 18, you would actually you would either go to Schoenberg or Stravinsky. You had to pick when you were a California kid because they were both there, and they were both immigrant composers from Europe, and, and he picked Schoenberg. There's a letter to Dieter Schnabel, the German organist, about Schoenberg, and Cage wrote it long, long, long after the fact, but it's a real kind of looking backwards at Schoenberg, and it's a very beautiful, beautiful account. I think that Schoenberg made his life difficult, but I think out of those, the difficulties is how Cage found himself. Cage, I think, in a way, because of his lack of feeling for harmony, his so-called lack of feeling for harmony, I find his works harmonically very beautiful, but he himself didn't feel, uh, he had no feeling for harmony, as he put it. And uh, 
Cage had to find other ways of working, you know, other ways that to engage in musical structure, etc. When Cage died, he had three copies of Schoenberg's Style and Idea in his library, and he was reading one of them for weeks before he died. It is said that Schoenberg saw Cage as a genius, just not a composer. Schoenberg's shadow would loom over Cage for the rest of his career. Cage said, Schoenberg convinced me that music required structure to differentiate parts of a whole. Cage and his wife lived in Los Angeles for a few more years where he met Oscar Fischinger. Fischinger furthered Cage's understanding of Zen and helped introduce him to the idea of graphic notation. Cage stated, Fischinger taught me that everything in the world has a spirit that can be released through its sound. I was not inclined towards spiritualism, but I began to tap everything I saw. I explored everything through its sound. This led to my first percussion orchestra. In 1937, John Cage accepted a position at Seattle's Cornish School as a composer pianist for a dance class. While in Seattle, Cage met Merce Cunningham, a dancer and choreographer who would later become his lifelong partner, professionally and romantically. Cage collected hundreds of percussion instruments and wrote percussive compositions to accompany dances. Cage came to dance before he met Cunningham, right? So he was doing work with as a dance accompanist when he was in San Francisco and uh, before he moved to Seattle, where he became a dance accompanist and I forget exactly what his title was there. I think he was teaching some courses as well at the Cornish School in Seattle. And that's where Cunningham was a student. And then that's where they met. Cunningham was a dance student there. Cage was a dance composer, accompanist and so forth and formed this percussion ensemble to create new works for all percussion music. So he had an ensemble there in Seattle, and Cunningham was a member of that ensemble because he had all of these sort of not really professional musicians, but dancers and other people who could play percussion instruments and do the work. The, the, cage, the so-called Cage-Cunningham collaboration, in essence, was no collaboration at all. <laughs> in, you know, really, if you think about it, in the sense that the only thing that they collaborated on was time. They both said this piece is going to be 20 minutes long. And that was usually Merce telling John. You know, it was Merce saying, I need this dance to be this long. John did not care about, he wasn't privy to any of, any details, like how many dancers, uh, if there was some theme going on in Merce's mind, John didn't know. And that was true for all the collaborations around Merce, you know, that... It was just sharing the space. They would share the stage. Oftentimes, the dancers didn't even hear Cage's music until the first performance. That's a true story. Yeah. So they didn't rehearse to it. They didn't learn it. Merce made a dance. Merce created a dance. Fully notated. Fully. Fully, fully, fully. Fully. I think Merce thinks he experimented with so-called improvisation maybe once or twice, ever, in all of his years of, of working in the dance. And it, he wasn't pleased. He didn't like it. It's a different animal. You know, it's a, improvisation is a very different animal. Cage didn't improvise but a few times 
in compositions, and it was what he called controlled improvisation. That's a whole topic. But Merce, Merce was not interested in improvisation. One of the forces in modern dance was they were trying to get away from the way that ballet was so tied to the composer and to the piece of music, and they wanted to be much more independent. And so they used simple percussion accompaniments often uh, with with modern dance. And that's the world where Cage becomes uh, introduced to dance uh, to uh, percussion, and he begins writing pieces for amateurs, for dancers that he was working with who could also play percussion instruments. One of the reasons the dancers liked percussion was because it, they could do it themselves. It was a kind of a do-it-yourself music. Uh, and so that's really where he comes to that world. And what he brings to it is much more the composer's uh, attitude and a, um, you know, and a, a professionalism and a polish and a, a you know, musicianship that was not what uh, modern dancers themselves would, would do. So it's much more interesting. Kyle Gann wrote in the foreword to Silence, to write for unpitched percussion, Cage needed a new idea of structure since all the traditional musical forms revolved around pitch and harmony. He arrived at macro microcosmic rhythmic structure, sometimes called square root structure, in which each phase of a piece embodies the same rhythmic proportions as the entire piece. For instance, his first construction in metal is divided into sections with a proportion 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, which adds up to 16. So each of the sections is also 16 measures divided by 4 plus 3 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4. Cage employed this technique throughout the rest of his career. In 1938, Cage reinvented the prepared piano inspired by Cal, who had put an egg between two piano strings to alter the tone. Cage placed screws, bolts, and other materials between the strings of a grand piano, making it more percussive and changing the pitch so that even the performer was clueless to what would be the end result. Bacchanal would be the first prepared piano piece he would compose.
1839, he composed his first electronic music piece, Imaginary Landscape Number no. 1, which used two variable speed turntables and different frequency recordings. Cage then moved to Chicago to teach at the Chicago School of Design, divorcing his wife, Kashaviroff, soon after. Cage returned to New York, where he was slated to perform for Peggy Guggenheim, but he planned works at Museum of Modern Art, and Guggenheim shunned him for a time. Cage then met pianist David Tudor and mythologist Joseph Campbell. Campbell then introduced Cage to Ananda K. Kumaraswamy, who is credited with introducing the Western world to Indian art. Cage continued to perform prepared piano pieces, which drew comparison to Austrian composer Anton Webern. Webern and Cage both strive to reinvent the contrapnel techniques. To Belez and beyond, Joan Pizer wrote, For Cage, it was Satie who effectively broke with the past. In Satie, Cage said, the structures have to do with time, not pitch. Virgil Thompson introduced me to Satie just at the time I first heard Webern. I connected the two composers in my mind. But Webern and Satie are worlds apart. Satie was a Dadaist, in a sense a Duchamp. In Parade, he called for a typewriter, a steam whistle, and a rattle in the instrumentation, a full-fledged inventor who looked at music irreverently. Satie was out to destroy art, not preserve it. With anti-sentimental stance, his verbal and musical attacks on culture, and his violent assaults on high art, he soon dominated Webern in Cage's head and heart. Cage was absolutely devoted to Satie. I mean, and, and from if you look at, I, I put out a book recently called The Selected Letters of John Cage, and there's a, a handful of letters in there where he's talking to a variety of people on Satie. And it's clear he understood him and revered him in a way that was even shocking to me after the fact, you know, after he wasn't around. I think he was enchanted by the eclecticism, but I think that the real influence was the musical elements of Satie's work. He, he even, in one of the letters in this book, uh, I think it's a letter to Peter Yates, who was a rather important guy. He had a concert series in LA called uh, Evenings on the Roof, he and his wife, Frances. He was really Cage's sounding board and really Cage's best critic for uh, in those formative years, you know, like in the in the 40s into into the early 50s. And I think it's in a letter to him where he talks about Satie's use of rhythm as a formal structure as opposed to harmony. And that was very much what, what, what Cage was doing at the time and what to the end of his life of all the musical aspects, you know, form being one, rhythm being another, melody being another, harmony being another, that r rhythm for him was uh, 
the be all end all. It was the structure around he what he himself did. It was the it was why he was able to write or was so enthusiastic about percussion, because so much of percussion instruments are unpitched, so you don't have to worry so much about harmony. You're worrying more about time, and that's I think that's he felt that Sati was his only real precursor in his interest. Cage, in his composition Sonatas and Interludes, was inspired by Kumar Swami and tried to attempt the expression in music of the permanent emotions of Indian tradition. The heroic, the erotic, the wondrous, the mirthful, sorrow, fear, anger, the odious, and their common tendency toward tranquility. Thus, Sonatas and Interludes became Cage's most well-received composition to date and earned him a grant. Cage used his grant money from sonatas and interludes and traveled to Paris and other parts of Europe in 1949. As an American in Paris during that time, he represented a culture that had helped to liberate France from political and intellectual constraint and symbolized the future. Trip in 1949 when he met Boulez. He gets a grant, he travels to Europe, Cunningham goes also, and he's dancing there, so they're doing some things together. He meets Boulez, who's a much younger composer. He loves Boulez's music and wants to promote it in the U.S. And they start up this correspondence afterwards, which has been published now and translated, and it makes for interesting reading. And it's one of these great things of where it looks like they're on the same page, but they're, they're almost not. This is the first time he meets them. Now, at this point, chance hasn't happened yet. Right, None of that's happened. It, it's on the verge of happening. The string quartet, which is an important pivotal piece, this like how to apply the approach to materials of the prepared piano to something else, that's an important step in that process. That piece was started while he was in Paris, so right after he met Bullitt. and Cage's correspondence is published in a beautiful edition by a UK scholar named Martin Eden. And it's very apparent when you read these letters. It's also in, by the way, English translations. So there's the original uh, collection as published, which is in French and English. And then they did a beautiful uh, English edition where everything's translated. But what's really, really interesting, and I remember reading this when I was working with Cage because it was such an eye-opener to me, is that they met, they were terribly enthusiastic about each other, they wrote letters back and forth, Cage became Boulez's champion in America. He came home, he gave David Tudor the second piano sonata of Boulez and said, you have to play this, and Tudor did, and everybody was in love with Boulez. And they wrote these letters back and forth. And then Cage, in 1950-51, starts working with Chance. 
and he writes to Boulez uh, about the music of changes, which is the first piece fully notated in chants, with chants procedures. And Boulez, <laughs> Cage writes in the first letter about music of changes, and Boulez is so excited. Oh, I can't wait to hear it. You have some of the score, blah, blah, blah. The next letter Cage writes is all about the chance procedures in writing, and Boulez rejects him. And that was it. Really, there's no... It's, it's totally clear. You know, now Boulez, before he died, I don't know if you saw that little snippet on the internet. There was this little thing where Boulez says something about... Something about... Cage, when Cage gets involved with Zen Buddhism, you know, he kind of went downhill or something like that, something really ridiculous. When it wasn't Buddhism, it was chants, according to Boulez. They're different because Boulez controlled everything in his compositions, and Cage used chants to determine his compositions, which, by the way, are fully determined once he used chants, but I digress. As Paul Griffiths wrote, both composers made extensive use of number charts, but where Boulez's goal with these was total serial organizations, Cage's was non-intention. For Boulez, objective rule was a guardian against traditional values and a guarantor of independence. He as a composer was a master of the rule. For Cage, always more radical, mastery of the rule was an ideal conceit. He was delighted by the possibility of removing his own creative wishes. Cage returned to the U.S. Upon his return to New York, Cage enrolled in Zen Buddhism at Columbia University, a course taught by D.T. Suzuki. It is said that Zen Buddhism saved Cage from himself. K. Larson wrote, Cage's work and life changed dramatically. He made a great leap of the heart, a turning. The word conversion comes from verter, to turn. That opened his eyes to the boundless sky all around him. He introduced chance, indeterminacy, process, and a host of other new ideas into his music. Cage then completed string quartet in four parts. Half of the sounds were silence. It is here that he became entranced with silence, viewing it as interchangeable with other sounds. Christian Wolff gave Cage an English copy of I Ching, Book of Changes. I Ching led Cage to use random operations to determine any one of 64 hexagrams. Each hexagram describes a different state of mind. While composing music of changes, he tossed coins in the air to determine which of the 64 sounds would be the next part. Fundamentally, 
so there's kind of two ways. I mean, certainly Cage read the I Ching, the Book of Changes, read the text, and you know he consulted that as an oracle and was interested in in the whole philosophy behind it. However, as it related to him musically, fundamentally, it's just a random number generator for him. It's a way, a particular way to get numbers between one and sixty-four. So you you know because there's the sixty-four hexagrams and you toss the coins and you get the lines and you interpret them and you get those, the hexagrams, which are numbered one to 64. And he used it to generate those numbers and then related his compositional decisions to those numbers. So you'll always see in his compositional procedures, everything always relates in some way to the number 64. Uh, for example, oh, odd numbers between 1 and 64 are silences, and even numbers will represent sounds, and so on, that kind of thing. Or numbers from 1 to 16 are this, and 17 to 32 represents that. And Brenda Lynn Leach wrote, Cage made clear the difference between the concepts of chance and interdeterminacy in the compositional process. Chance involves something random in the composition of a piece, rolling dice, for example. Interdeterminacy, on the other hand, refers to a style of composition in which the composer creates and notates concrete material that can be played in a multitude of ways based on the choice made by other people. The decision regarding how this music is played is shared with the performers who help determine exactly what the final musical product will be. The final composition is determined by the choices they will make. The indeterminate works, which start coming up in, in the mid-50s and, and then later, where he's giving them there's performer choice about things, he's pretty clearly putting a boundary around. I mean, in the 60s, it gets less and less defined, but that's the 60s for you. Initially, at least, you know, he's describing the rules by which those scores can be interpreted. So there are rules around them. And his intent was that the performer would approach that task in a similar way that he himself was approaching it compositionally with this sense of emptiness and not a sense of personal expression or, or trying to, to assert personality necessarily. So I think really important when you think about those pieces in the 50s and uh, into the early 60s, the indeterminate works, he's writing for people he knows. So, and particularly David Tudor, the phenomenal pianist and musician who, for whom the music changes was written. Cage said like every piece he wrote from about 1952 into the 60s, he wrote it for David Tudor, whether or not it was even for piano, because it was David Tudor's approach, which was very, very much in sync with Cage's thinking. Tudor, a phenomenally disciplined and precise performer who he says, without actually using silence, I would like to praise it. Right. I think that's what he says in the letter to his parents when he's in Paris starting it. I would, I would like to praise silence with this piece. So that's what silence means for him in 1949. And that's where he's going with all of these systematic things. Um, and then later in the 50s, in the early 50s, when he goes to the 
the famous story that he tells a million times going to the anechoic chamber at Harvard, where he really, like, he wants to experience real silence, you know, where it's silent, silent. And he recognizes that, oh, no, he can still hear, like, these body, these sounds that his own body is generating internally. And he kind of has this realization that, oh, no, it's not that there's sounds, it's just that I'm not intending them to be there. These are the sounds that are just happening. And so then he has this redefinition that silence is unintended sound. And then at that point, all of his music is silent, right? It's because he's not, or at least that's the way he would look at it. He's not pushing it around. And the silent piece, four minutes and 33 seconds, comes out about that time from that. David Tudor became Cage's muse of sorts, and Music of Changes in 1951 was the first piece they premiered together. On this piece, Cage used what later became known as space-time notation, where time is measured in length and not traditional bars. This method of composition was popular in the 1950s, 60s, and even 70s among composers such as Earl Brown, Pierre Schaeffer, Morton Feldman, Otto Luning, Christian Wolff, and others. Also in 1951, Imaginary Landscapes number no. 4 was composed for 12 radios, each set to a different number being played simultaneously. Temperature shoot for 80 degrees this afternoon. In 1952, Cage composed Williams Mix, his first work with tape, which consisted of 60 categories of sound. In his own words, Cage described his 192-page score. For making music on magnetic tape, each page has two systems comprising eight lines each. These eight lines are eight tracks of tape, and they are pictured full-size so that the score constitutes a pattern for the cutting of tape and its splicing. For Cage, it was about this physical manipulation of the tape. So he had a lot of pre-recorded stuff. He went out and, and recorded sounds of various sorts. He had a whole categorization scheme for the types of sounds to go record, city sounds and country sounds and small sounds, and I can't remember all the other ones. And so he made all those recordings. So he had lots of material, so you can just imagine all these reels of tape. And his composing process determined what the splices looked like. So, you know, when he described his work with um, dancers as being composing like to a dressmaker's pattern, this literally was like that. He has the score which shows how the splices should be made. And there are all sorts of, you know, exact angles for, for cutting the splices of the tape and how long everything should be. And then he and Earl Brown and David Tudor and a bunch of other people who were working together did all of those splices, you know, all that manual work of splicing tape. But for Cage, it was about then discovering what that sound would be. You know, unlike when you think about a lot of early electronic music 
pioneers. They were interested in how to treat sound as a sort of plastic material and how you would shape it and sculpt the sound. And for Cage, it's more... Here, I'm, my medium is tape, so I'm going to get, take a lot of tape, and my process is about how to splice and make a tape piece, and I'll find out what that sounds like. So it's a really odd way to make a tape piece, and so far as I know, he didn't do anything else like it. It was a ton of work. Again, like so many of Cage's things, it's, it's a ridiculous amount of work. I've always laughed when people say, oh, yeah, well, Cage was just a charlatan, you know, it's just a joker. And, you know, he did all these things that didn't take any effort. It's like, oh, no, he's like one of the hardest working composers around in the 50s. Phenomenal amount of work. In fact, I think Williams' mix is incomplete. I think he had had planned for it to be much longer, but that was just as much as they got done. Cage composed and debuted three historic concerts in 1952, the first of what is known as John Cage's Theater Pieces, which took place at the New School for Research on May 2nd. Williams Fetterman wrote, The six-minute and 40-second composition is for a pianist, who in addition to using the keyboard also employs a radio, various whistles, a deck of cards, containers of water, a wooden stick, four piano preparation objects, and a stopwatch. The piece is generally programmed as water music, although it may be identified as the date or place of performance. The second concert, known as The First Real Happening, was theater piece number one at Black Mountain College on August 16th. Cage stood on a ladder in the middle of a dining hall while the audience sat in triangular sections around him. He delivered a lecture as artists, musicians, and dancers moved all throughout the room. This performance was said to have been too radical for even the Dadaists, and there are no two accounts of this night that are the same. The third of these concerts was the infamous 4 minutes 33 seconds, performed in Woodstock, New York on August 29th. David Tudor walked on stage, sat down at the piano, opened it, and sat on the bench. He would close the piano at the end of each movement and open it again to start the next one. Silence being pushed to center stage made the audience the composer of the piece. Taken from Alex Ross's 2010 New Yorker piece, Searching for Silence, there's no such thing as silence, Cage said, recalling the premiere. You could hear the wind stirring outside during the first movement. During the second, raindrops began pattering the roof. And during the third, people themselves made all kinds of interesting sounds as they talked or walked out. 433, as a composition, is a direct outgrowth of music of changes. Direct. He says, without actually using silence, I would like to praise it. 
right? I think that's what he says in the letter to his parents when he's in Paris starting it. I would, I would like to praise silence with this piece. So that's what silence means for him in 1949. And that's where he's going with all of these systematic things. Um, and then later in the 50s, in the early 50s, when he goes to the, the famous story that he tells a million times, going to the anechoic chamber at Harvard, where he really, like he wants to experience real silence you know, where it's silent, silent. And he recognizes that, oh no, he can still hear like these body, these sounds that his own body is generating internally. And he kind of has this realization that, oh no, it's not that there's sounds, it's just that I'm not intending them to be there. These are the sounds that are just happening. And so then he has this redefinition that silence is unintended sound. And then at that point, all of his music is silent, right? It's because he's not... Or, at least that's the way he would look at it. He's not pushing it around. And the silent piece, four minutes and 33 seconds, comes out about that time from that. The first iteration of 433 of the piece actually used rests. Now, unfortunately, that score is lost, so we haven't seen it. But that's how it began. He, his gamut was rests. What rest goes here? What rest follows this? What rest follows that? It seems kind of stupid to think about it that way, but that's how it started. It came out of this idea of gamuts. I do think it's true of, of four, four minutes and 33 seconds that it's this kind of personal piece that almost reluctantly Cage comes out and says it. I, I can't prove it. I wrote an article a few years back in which I made all kinds of speculations about four minutes and 33 seconds, and I can't prove any of that stuff. But I have a feeling that it came about in part because he was kind of pushed into doing it a little bit. He had had this idea, and Tudor sort of pushed him to do it a little bit. I can't prove that. That's just a hunch. And also, I've, I've had the speculation that it happened almost by accident. Uh, in 1952, he was writing a series of pieces called Seven Haiku, which are very, very, very short works that use the same materials as his Music of Changes, this big, long 45-minute piano work, which was the first big-scale chance piece. And he wrote these little short Seven Haiku, which are just seconds long, using that same system of using chance to decide what would happen. It is totally possible, at one point I worked out what some estimate of what the odds were. And it's totally possible that he would have done that process and come up with nothing but silence for one of these short pieces. It's just so short enough. And the process that he used had a 50-50 chance of sound or silence at any point. Yeah, you could have come up with all silence for this whole piece. And I have, I just, I love the idea that that's what happened. And that kind of pushed him into it. Like, Oh, okay. So this could happen. And Tudor's like, yeah, you should do your, your the whole piece that way. You should allow that to happen. Cage and Tudor toured several European cities in 1954. These performances showcased Cage's indeterminacy and were said to have had a lasting impact on some of Europe's new school of music. One such performance, where they were expected to perform pieces such as sonatas and interludes, instead performed a shortened version of 34 minutes, 46.776 seconds for two pianists. The pitch and placement in time was, as the title states, notated down to the second. The dynamics, though, were marked by three narrow bands on the score, leaving the attack in the realm of indeterminacy. 
Henry Cal invited Cage to participate in discussions as well as presenting performances at the New School for Social Research. In 1956, he became a member of the faculty. Cage, in this appointment, reinforced the Institute's avant-garde reputation. He taught courses on Eric Satie and Virgil Thompson, as well as experimental composition and mycology. Cage was fascinated with mycology and helped revive the New York Mycological Society in the 60s. He spent much of his time hunting for mushrooms in the woods around his home and around the world, as nature would forever be his lasting influence. So he became interested in mycology when he moved to the country. So he'd been totally a city guy living in Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, and he was certainly very much at home in New York. And then in the 50s, actually probably about the time he was working on the tape music stuff. He moved out into the country in upstate New York. And uh, as he said, oh, he realized he was starved for nature. And that's where he takes lots of walks in the woods and he gets interested in mushroom hunting and, and finding, finding mushrooms. He was a great cook. When I did my dissertation research, uh, I was at NYU. I, I lived blocks away from Cage, you know, I was down in the village and he was up on uh, 16th Street. And and Chelsea, such a marvelous man, you know, I just wrote to him and said, I want to do this research. Can I come see what kind of documents you have? I wanted to see like the working materials that made these pieces, like how did you do it? So I wrote to him and he instantly wrote me back saying, here's my phone number, call and, and we'll arrange time to come up. That was my research trip every week was, you know, to go to Cage's place. And he had lots of materials and I would mostly sit in his living room or in his dining table, you know, going through materials while he did whatever it was he needed to be doing, you know, on the phone or working with performers, but always cooking. There was always something going on in the kitchen there. And he had this big loft space, so, you know, it was all connected. I learned from experience to to arrange my visits around lunchtime, and I would I would I I'd get lunch that way. I'm Brian Brandt, and I founded Mode Records in 1984. Oh yeah, well, a, a lot of these early meetings uh, with these different musicians as they passed through New York would happen at his apartment, and he would very often. At the very minimum, he would have some fresh brewed tea that he would make and so on. But sometimes he would also make meals, and these meals could be really quite something. And for me also, I, I mean, it's it's not like now where you have these vegetarian and uh, vegan meals all over the place. But he was really a, a, an excellent vegetarian cook. This goes back to his having to deal with his terrible arthritis, which got him onto this macrobiotic diet, actually, I believe, suggested to him by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. I remember there's one, one meal he made with these giant kale leaves. I didn't even know what kale was at the time. <laughs> Cage composed cartridge music in 1960 in which sounds were pulled from cartridges of record players. Performers manipulated the cartridges in various ways, scraping them, touching them, hitting them with objects so that the sound of the object and its effect was fed to an amplifier and speaker. 
The object and how they used the object was at the musician's discretion. The score was a series of transparent sheets with patterns to be superimposed on each other. The performers sorted out their time structure by interpreting the way the patterns intersected on the sheets. This piece resonated how Cage let indeterminacy rule. Yes, he composed the piece, but the cartridges themselves determined what actually was produced. Cage published Silence, Lectures and Writings in October of 1961. Many artists, including post-minimalist composer Kyle Gann, who wrote the foreword to the 50th anniversary edition, noted silence as having profound influence on their careers. In September of 1963, Cage decided to fully realize Satie's desire of performing vexations 840 times. He and 10 pianists, including John Cale, Christian Wolfe, and of course, David Tudor, played the half sheet of notation in 21-minute shifts. This lasted from 6 p.m. until lunchtime the next day. John Cale was the only one who sat through the whole thing. For Cage, this was an experiment into Zen meditations, and he was quoted as saying, I had changed, and the world had changed. Cage became engrossed in Henry David Thoreau's writing in the late 60s. And with this, he was captivated by literature throughout the 70s and often reimagined writings that he enjoyed into music. Still composing and teaching throughout the 70s and 80s, Cage continued to spread his influence across the globe. The first time I ever saw um, a work, this was after I had worked with John, and we made a piece called Essay, which was uh, a breaking down of, of uh, Thoreau's text, the, the Duty of Civil Disobedience, Essay on the Duty of Civil Disobedience, which is why Cage's piece is called Essay. But he broke that down into vowels and syllables and elongated it and manipulated it in the studio. And I got to be there and it was so great. And he and Merce were going to make this dance called Essay and it was going to premiere on the, over the BBC. And I had to go back to Los Angeles and I went back to Los Angeles. And then the company came to Los Angeles and they performed it and I went to it and I was so irritated. When I saw that this piece was linked with Mercer's Dance, which was made after the fact. But then I had this real aha moment because it worked beautifully. It could have been written. You know what I mean? You would not know that they hadn't been 
written together. You know, I only just, that was the aesthetic. That's what they did. But it was as if, I'm going to tell you one more very quick little story because. There's a really interesting thing that a phenomenon, let's let's call it, that people uh, have a they have a different idea about anarchy than the way Cage actually thought about anarchy. So if you talk, for example, if you talk to people in Europe about anarchy, they hear it as a rather destructive, kind of militant, kind of behavioral idea. Whereas Cage's idea of anarchy was very much about sort of self-governance. It was about uh, uh, self-responsibility. It was about anarchy turning turning away from uh, ideas of someone else taking care of you or someone else being responsible other than yourself. So it was a much more kind of individualistic thing for him. You know, when he was writing, he wrote a book based on his time at Harvard University, and it was uh, not based on it. He prepared a text called One Through Six, and it's six Masostic poems, this kind of poetry that he developed, and they were delivered as one-hour lectures. And in that, he brought together, it was supposed to be somewhat autobiographical. And so what he did was he brought together a lot of writings by a lot of different people, that had meant things to him throughout his life, including his own writings, his own thinking. And he uh, mushed them all together, in, in effect. Masostic is really brushing one set of information, one kind of information up against another kind of information. And he, he used a, a great number of the anarchists, the writings by anarchists. Emma Goldman is really front and center. Henry David Thoreau, who was an anarchist, of course, and I remember him writing to this woman named Esther Ferrer, who's an artist in, uh, I think she lives in Spain, with the music critic Tom Johnson, actually. And she wrote him back the most beautiful letter explaining to Cage her idea of anarchy based on what, everything that Cage thought. And it's a really marvelous letter. You can read this online. And, in fact, okay. people who hear this podcast might want to look this up. If they just do... If they just Google Esther Ferrer, it's F-E-R-R-A-R, I think it's A-R, it might be E-R, F-E-R-R-E-R, um, <laughs> Anarchy, John Cage. And it's literally, he reproduced this in his book, in this book called One to Six, or One Six. And it really talks about the very things that I just alluded to, this notion of self-responsibility, this notion of self-governance and self-care, if you will. There's a wonderful line by Thoreau that Cage used in a couple of different compositions, and the line is, the best form of government is no government at all, and that will be the kind of government that people will have when they're ready for it. You know, I don't know that, I wouldn't say that he was removed. People actually see him as apolitical. 
that is to say, without politics at all, or they roll their eyes if you say that, and they say he but a political, you know, that he was extremely political. He was not, he didn't vote, for example. He never voted, never. He didn't believe in voting. He didn't believe in, in big government. So I don't know that I would say that he was removed. He was just okay. not, he didn't participate in that world at all. One of the things that I say, I think in that preface, I think I say this, that one thing became very clear to me in, in bringing all those letters together is that he started life as John Cage. You know, that he didn't, there's no big dramatic change that happened where he said, aha, I'm an anarchist. You know, he just, even when he was a young man, you know, he was, he felt entirely responsible for his own actions. He felt responsible to the world, you know. Cage complained that people cannot just listen to the sounds that are presented as they are always talking during performances. He said that people must engage in the act of listening, letting all the sounds simply be what they are, or as they are heard or interpreted by the individual. A truly active listener, both hearing and listening, is taken back to his or her own humanity and existence in the world. Cage shifted musical composition from a place where skilled people controlled what was created to a place where a truly active imaginative mind could create and give compositions to the world at will or chance. Uh, it was a, a, a composer's institute in Telluride. It was called Composer to Composer. Cage was one, and Martin Sabotnik was there, and Joan LaBarbera was there, and Ricardo Del Fara from Central from South America. Anyway, Trimpin was there, the Nankero specialist. Anyway, there were about a dozen composers, and Laurie was one of them. And we were in some social time together, all of us, at uh, having dinner or something in a house. And I remember Lori Spiegel living in a loft in New York, and she was bitterly complaining about the noise in the city and how much it bothered her. And Cage responded with something like, you really must get over that, you know, or we're lost. I mean, he took it very, very personally, you know, that the world is full of sound and we can't hold some of it as bad and some of it is good. Now, obviously, you don't want your eardrums blown out, you know. You don't want something which harms you. But he loved, Cage loved to experience sound as as good, you know, as or at least not as good, one thing good and one thing bad. He wanted to experience all of it as good. Back in the early 1980s, I was going to a lot of concerts uh, in in New York. There were 
really tremendous amount of uh, new music concerts going on. And Cage would often go to these things uh, himself. So even if they weren't performing his music on the program, he was a curious person to, to hear uh, other people's music. So uh, <clears throat> we started to recognize each other just by seeing each other at these concerts, which were you know, typically in small venues and so on. And uh, I was also, at the same time, a very uh, large record collector. Um, and I was very interested in Cage. So finally, uh, I decided to approach him once. Um, and I'm pretty sure this was at Alice Tully Hall during an intermission at a concert. And I wanted to find out from him if any new music uh, was coming out. On, on LP at that time um, because I, of course, would be interested in buying that. And he told me that uh, there were some musicians playing these recent works of his very beautifully, but that uh, it seemed no one was interested in recording uh, these pieces. So I don't know what really came over me, but I suggested to him that maybe I could do it and he said that that would be marvelous, and he just gave me his phone number. Well, Cage was a very approachable person. At first, I didn't really know him at all, but I had his phone number, and I had to figure out how to record a record. But I, I did the research, and I, I found an engineer, I found a studio, and then I rang him back. And I told him, you know, John, I think we can we can do this now. And he was delighted about that, and he offered to come to the recording session and uh, supervise everything, which he did. And, I mean, the, the strange thing about that record was um, it was a piece called Etudes Borealis, which exists in three versions. There's a, a solo piano, a solo cello, or they can be played as a duo. And it ended up being too long for one LP. So I suggested that we make it a two LP set. And then he suggested another piece to go on the fourth side, which was uh, Rio Anji. While we were working on this record, because he was at all the recording sessions and so on, he offered to uh, do a drawing for the cover. So he made a piece of original art specifically for this record. And uh, then he he also knew that, and this, this I think was quite interesting, he knew that I didn't really have any any money and I didn't really have any established record label. So he offered, when the record was done, to sign and number a series so that these could be sold at a higher price to help generate some, some money for Mode Records, which I thought was really generous of him. And I, I went over there with with the record to his apartment and sat there while he was, you know, signing and numbering these things.
once the record was finished, he would, of course, be happy to get a copy of it, but I don't think he ever bothered to listen to it because it didn't interest him anymore. But he knew, at least, that uh, this particular piece was uh, a well-done performance. And for many years in, in, in the uh, beginning of our working together, because we started to, to work together in 1984, as I said, he would be involved with each recording directly in one form or another. And he would try to come to the recording sessions and so on. And he would have often real comments about how, how things uh, were going and, and so on with the musicians. And, and, and then as time went on, I, I kept trying to get him to always go to these things. And one thing that he said that uh, really... I felt very, very proud of was at one point he said to me, oh, uh, Brian, you, you don't need me there anymore. In other words, he, he trusted that I could do it now, that I understood w what he was looking for. He certainly is a very talented writer as well and had the ability to, had a very strong vision of changing your mind right going to change your mind about what what could be musical or what couldn't be or about what your relationship as the composer is to your work i think it's this combination of really good composer really good writer and a really compelling vision of this silence as both inner and silence as unintended sound as the whole world of sound. I think that's a, such a compelling vision that changed people's minds that you, you, you could turn everything upside down. That sure for sure was what got me hooked. Well, whenever it was, I'm not going to say when, when I read that book all those many years ago that, Oh, you, you could like totally rethink about how, you know, what, what was acceptable. You could totally rethink it. And there's that sense of so many, so many composers saying, he gave me permission to do this, right? So Cage has set, says all these very, very radical things about coming to really, really to zero, like really, you know, be totally silent. And that is a way then for other people to say, well, yeah, and I could totally rethink it. I could go in a completely different direction. It's so audacious. And he's he's kind of that figure that gives people permission to do things. Although he would always say, but only if you take zero as the basis, right? Not to be, you know, self-indulgent and, you know, just go off and, and do silly things. But like, if you really come to zero, yeah, then anything becomes possible. It's all totally possible. And that really changed everybody's minds and, you know, mine included. I think he had an incredible work ethic, and he was really busy with a lot of things, even up until the period that he died, because he died rather suddenly. And, like, for example, I would sometimes, you know, go visit him because we were very, we lived very close to each other. And this was very much uh, towards the end. And uh, there were 
really a lot of uh, festivals and performances of his music being organized around his anniversary, um, his birthday, because it was a big birthday year. And he, I mean, he, he really was very respectful about people and the ones that that he really uh, valued. He didn't want to disappoint those people, so he would he would agree to do to be at all of these different concerts, and many of them were in Europe and and so on. And I remember him saying to me once, uh, this very very shortly before he passed away, he said uh, something along the lines of um, that he wished he could just really stay home and work instead of having to uh, travel and, and show up at all these events because he had so much he wanted to do. very, very important figure in the world of, of contemporary art. Now, those folks knew all about him. And so happenings and a lot of the other uh, uh, developments in the art world very much indebted to Cage's work. And somebody like Yoko Ono, who knew him, right, and for whom Cage wrote uh, Zero Minutes, Zero Seconds, which is his Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, number two, was very for Yoko Ono and Toshi Ichianagi. Um, so, you know, like that world is where he's traveling. When you ask people whether or not they like modern art and modern music, and it's interesting how people have a much more visceral response to modern music than they do to modern art. And I think it's simply that you can look away. You can't stop from hearing unless you go deaf, and nobody wants that. So, For me, I, I found him to be really an extraordinary person. And he really concentrated on his art, sometimes to the point of not being really aware of what was going on, say, in popular music at all. I always found, you know, conversations with him to be very enlightening in some ways. For me, he was a great influence on my life, not only because this record label wouldn't have occurred if it wasn't for this kind of chance encounter with him and the way that all worked out. But uh, he was also, you know, quite, quite a generous person with his with his time and and um, even even economically, he he could be quite generous. And I think that this is really quite quite unique, his personality and and also his way of thinking. Because over the years, I've known so many composers and and musicians, but I can't say I've ever really met anyone quite like John Cage. He's kind of very special personality. Difficult to actually describe it in real concrete words. He was very unique. Paul Griffiths stated perfectly, non-intention was itself intention. And what allows us to go on speaking of Cage as a composer is the unparalleled determination with which he pursued that intention through an extraordinary variety of ways and means. This is where individual taste and memory, psychology, make the remarkable return for a determined absence of determination had already been the central characteristic of his music, an absence revealed in his treatment of time 
as unmotivated extension, his choice of simplicity and repetition, his avoidance of rhetoric. Nobody could make unmeant music as he could. Schoenberg's music began an irreversible movement of musical sound into the realm outside of mainstream classical music. In this spirit, the avant-garde music movement changed American rock and pop music. The time and place of Schoenberg greatly affected his musical aesthetic. Like Cage and other modernist artists, Ross pointed out that Schoenberg, too, was throwing paint on canvas with his Of Our Tongue piece. Schoenberg started the ascent from the depths of popular and bourgeois art culture in Europe. Chance and Eastern philosophy took hold of avant-garde artists in the American West. As we open up a discussion of avant-garde and the birth of minimalism in America in future episodes, you'll see the influence of these five powerful composers as their students, friends, and acquaintances travel from West Coast to East Coast and vice versa. Whether it is through imitation or from artists deliberately distancing themselves, Schoenberg, Satie, Varez, Messiaen, Stockhausen, Oliveros, and Cage play a major role in the shaping of American music. Special thanks to Laura Kuhn, Brian Brandt, and James Pritchett. This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.